is so beautiful to sit in this room with you all. You probably noticed this evening, sitting in the candlelight, just the beauty of our circle. I was thinking if someone, occasionally there's somebody from the media who comes. Last year someone came from the New York Times during the two-month course. And, you know, if you walk in off the street to something like what we were doing within the candlelight and you saw a hundred women sitting, a person would go, oh my God, they're all in nirvana, you know. <laughs> Looks that way anyway, huh? <laughs> we know the truth. Yes. How it looks and what's actually going on in everyone is not necessarily the same, is it? But um, actually it takes so much courage and real compassion to do the work that it is to sit intensively, to sit with yourself in silence with no distractions as you're seeing everything, everything comes up. So it's a very, very powerful thing to do, and it's an honor to feel how fully you're doing it. And I can feel it when I sit here. So tonight I want to talk about compassion. Uh, The Buddha once talked about liberation, and he said liberation is like a great bird with two wings, that one of the wings is wisdom, and the other is compassion. And he said if you develop just wisdom, you'd be very, very wise, but if you don't have compassion, the great bird of liberation will not fly. And if you only develop compassion, but you don't become wise, you'll be very compassionate, but you will not experience the full liberation. So in our practice, we are working to cultivate and balance wisdom and compassion. And we cultivate the wisdom factor through Vipassana meditation, through learning to see clearly what is so. And in learning to see like that, we then begin to see reality as it is. And that is what's explained as wisdom at a very deep level when you see that. And we cultivate this quality of heart that the world so needs, which is compassion. That's what I want to talk about tonight. Um, The Dalai Lama, I'm going to mention several times tonight because he's probably uh, the most famous and inspiring embodiment of the teachings of compassion that we have on the planet today because of his heroic uh, relationship with the Chinese how he has worked with the Chinese over all these years <clears throat> is, is really something. And in his book, um, Ethics for a New Millennium, the Dalai Lama said, for humanity to survive, we have to cultivate empathy and compassion. And it's really a profound thing for this whole show to keep going. He said, we're going to have to learn to feel with and for each other, particularly where we're different. So if we're from a different culture or a different class or a different race, in order to keep going with our planet, we're going to have to learn to care 
and feel for others in compassion, in kindness. And it's sort of obvious. It's an obvious thing we know. The next step, of course, is to live it, to, to become it like he has become it in such an incredible way. So um, he also talks about how if we're not feeling with, especially where there's differences, we can go into experiencing someone else as the other. And as soon as someone is the other, we can treat them in all kinds of ways that create suffering. We're, we're separate. But when we are us, when we're all family, of course, how do we take care of family? We take care. So it's a really profound, simple truth. Um, the dictionary, Webster's Dictionary, describes compassion as the sympathetic concern for the suffering of another or yourself, together with the inclination to give aid, support, or show mercy. The Buddha talked about compassion as the quivering of the heart in response to someone's pain, yourself or someone else's. So compassion is this capacity that we all have to feel with, to care for another, to feel connected with each other. And the word, I love the word, actually, I think it's a beautiful word. Um, Compassion, compassion, means with you in your passion, in your feelings. Compassion, with you. I feel with you, I care about your struggle. Compassion. So I'll tell you this story. A friend of mine returned, I guess it was about two months ago, from a pilgrimage where he went to Ladakh. He'd been planning this for a long time. And when he was crossing on a a trek, crossing 18,000-foot pass, he nearly died of um, altitude sickness. And in the middle, actually it was first thing in the morning after he nearly died in the night, um, the Sherpas put him on some sort of yak or something, and they just got him down. You know, they lowered the altitude as quickly as they could. And then <laughs> they found somebody with a car who, of course, my friend Gary couldn't speak to him, and they put him in the car, and he, he was so sick he just was riding along in a Jeep with somebody he didn't know. And the nice person took him to the nearest city, which was the city of Leh. And um, Gary is so sick at this point and disoriented. Um, he didn't know anybody in Leh except when he had been there um, on the way to the trek. He had met this one particular family, and he actually thought they were really beautiful. They're very simple, devout Buddhist family. And he only knew this, you know, he knew them for a couple of hours, and he had been to their home for some reason. So he directed this man who he couldn't speak the language to, to their house. And, he, and this man dropped him off at this home of this um, family, who immediately saw that he was very sick and took him to the hospital. Then, and Gary um, developed all these complications uh, of his sickness and had to be in the hospital for six days, which if you know about third world hospitals, <clears throat> that in itself is a life-threatening experience. But anyway, this is the part of the story that's so amazing. Um, Every morning, very early, 
the mother in this family would get up and make uh, this homemade soup that was specifically for helping Gary heal. Then the father would ride his bike across the city and bring Gary the soup and feed it to him. Then he would stay with him and sit with him for hours until he had to go to work. And when he had to go to work, somebody else from this family would show up and they stayed with him around the clock for six days. Then, when he was finally well enough to be released from the hospital, they took him and put him into their simple little home, into their bed, and treated him as a family member until he was really well. And this is a materially poor family. They, um, with grandparents, um, the mother, father, and their children, all, every one of those people, work seven days a week in order to survive which is not unusual for that country. That's how they live. So they didn't have what we would consider material wealth, yet they were so rich in generosity. And when Gary told me this story, he said, you know, it wasn't visiting Padmasambhava's cave, which he did, which was very incredible, and it wasn't receiving all these high blessings from the high lamas that he did, and it wasn't the near-death experience, which he had, um, that was really the profound teaching of the p- pilgrimage. He said it was, and this was his phrase, he said it was the nuclear kindness of this family, that he didn't ever even know there was such kindness and compassion, and he said he would have no idea that it would have been so hard to be the recipient from our culture. He said it, he, just, he didn't know how to receive this just unconditional kindness from strangers who became, of course, family <clears throat> to him. So for me, and I think for a lot of us, when we hear these kind of stories, it's, it moves our hearts to just hear about the basic goodness in people. And the reason that we feel something when we hear about it is because kindness and compassion is the language we all understand doesn't matter from what culture or what country. We understand it. And the reason that we all relate to and understand compassion is because it is part of our essential nature. It's in every one of us. The seed of great compassion is in every single one of us. But as we know... Even though we intellectually know uh, there's great compassion in us all, we don't necessarily always feel it all the time, do we? For everyone. Maybe you do. I don't always feel it. Part of the reason um, it's hard to really feel the compassion that's in us is that it's hard to face suffering. It's you noticing it sitting here. It's hard to face our own, you know, whatever it is, loneliness or the, or the irritability or the tiredness. It's also hard to face the AIDS orphans, you know, in Africa or the aging parents or the, you know, I could, the list goes on forever. The abuse that's happening right now down the road somewhere, not far from here. And we know that. It's hard to face it. And even harder than facing that is to open to it. 
But that is actually what we are asked to do in the practice of compassion, is to see it and be willing to care for, to connect with the sorrows or the difficulties of ourself or another. And we, it's an interesting thing. We, we think, or some part of us thinks, you know, if I hold this off, if I don't feel it, then I'll feel better. But we've all had the experience that when we finally just let go and let it in, there's like a relief. There's a, uh, a medicine, like this healing balm that comes. It's the balm of compassion. When we finally just let ourselves be touched by the sorrow or whatever it is that's around, ourself or someone else's, there's the compassion. We, and as we practice, we discover that what we resist increases the pain. So if there's some difficulty or suffering and we're trying to not feel it and we're trying to not see it and we're trying to be in denial, it's exhausting, really. And when we finally open... There's more space. From Rilke says, Let not even one of the clearly struck hammers of my heart fail to sound because of a slack, a doubtful or ill-tempered string. Let my joyfully streaming face Make me more radiant. Let my hidden weeping arise and blossom. How dear you will be to me then, you nights of anguish. Why didn't I kneel more deeply to accept you? Inconsolable sisters, and surrendering, lose myself in your loosened hair how we squander our hours of pain, how we gaze beyond them into a bitter endurance to see if they have an end, though they really are seasons of us, our winter-enduring foliage, ponds, meadows, and inborn landscape where birds and reed-dwelling creatures are at home. Mm. This is just such a profoundly different relationship to pain, isn't it? What if we just surrender? What if we just see this as our winter-enduring foliage, seasons of us? It's a completely different way to meet our life, to open rather than to close to the suffering that's part of life. Because there is suffering. Remember the first noble truth? It's here. It's in our life. And compassion, of course, cannot remove the inevitable suffering and losses that are part of life. But when we are willing to be with and open to life, compassion can bring us back home to ourself and to the ocean of love that connects us all. I worked with a woman for quite a long time, actually. Um, she had been a Dharma student for a long time, done a lot of retreats, 
And then she had a little baby, and then her little baby died at a very tiny little age. And of course, you know, it was just a tremendous loss. And um, she, in talking, you know, we talked a lot over for the few years following the death of this baby. And one of the things she said was, she said, you know, I had heard that stuff about impermanence. You know, every retreat you hear it. And she said, I actually thought I got it. I actually thought I understood about impermanence. And uh, then this happened. She said, now I, I get it. That loss and disappointment is woven in to every life. And there's no getting out of that. And she said, that that thing that I get now about life is so big that sometimes it, I choose or I attempt to close down. I don't want to open to the fact that there's going to be loss in this life. So as she said, I just close down. I try not to feel it. I try to hold it off. She said, then what happens is I get sort of all uh, hard and cold inside and I end up feeling isolated and lonely so inevitably, I come back, she said, and I choose the other way, which is I let the pain break my heart open again and again. I just let it open me. She said that since this infant died, she felt more pain than she had ever felt or even knew about. She said she also felt more kindness and compassion than she ever knew about. She said now, um, when somebody grieves, I feel it. I grieve with them. When somebody celebrates, I celebrate them. I with them. I. She said I feel like I'm part of the human family now. Something in her opened through this. So it's so extraordinary that part of the deal to become onto this planet and, and just be a human is that there's going to be disappointments and losses and suffering. That, that's going to be here. First Noble Truth. But also, part of the deal is that each one of us have a heart that can hold it all. There is enough compassion and love, not our little individual self, but we are all part of a great heart that can hold the enormous amount of change and loss and suffering that happens. Once I was with um, one of uh, a teacher who's very dear beloved to both Julie and I, Stephen Levine, and he was sort of going on about this of how you can, you know, the heart can hold it all and how the good thing about suffering is that you, um, you know, that you, your your sense of compassion deepens, and that you feel more connected with everything. You know, that that's the like the only good thing about suffering. And then he stopped and he said, "You know, before I go on too much about how great suffering is, he said, let's face it, suffering sucks." <laughs> so I always like to quote Stephen. I usually say these very eloquent things he says, but that was pretty eloquent. Don't want to pretend. Don't want to pretend for one minute. You know that it's so great to suffer. It isn't. It's just that there is suffering, and there is compassion. 
So in the same way that if there's a little child who's really freaked out and, and scared and restless and wakes up from a bad dream or something and the loving mother holds her, the little girl relaxes. In that same way, our fears and contractions and our shames can be held and embraced in compassion. And as we allow our, our tightnesses, our holdings to be held in compassion, we, like that little girl in the arms of her mother, we unfold and we come into wholeness. We can come into wholeness through letting our, our brokenness be held. Um, there's a beautiful story that a woman came to a retreat told me. She's a Chippewa Indian, and she told me this story. Some of you may have heard it. Um, years ago, during the Irish potato famine, um, somehow this Chippewa tribe that were, of course, at that time living in abject poverty on a reservation heard about the Irish potato famine. And these Native Americans knew what it was like to be hungry. And they knew what it was like to not know if you can feed your kids. They knew also what it was like to have lost everything, you know, their language, their land, their culture, you know, their dignity, everything. And so these, this tribe who had nothing were so moved when they heard about what was happening to the Irish that they got their whole tribe together and they collected every cent of American dollars that they could round up, which came to almost 300 American dollars by the whole tribe, and they sent it off to an Irish charity. Everything they had. And when the people of Ireland got wind of this story in the newspaper, and of course they were so moved that these Native Americans who had nothing gave everything they had So, when a whole lot of Irish uh, immigrants came to America, they went out of their way to go and settle right there in the same place, right next to the reservation, and work together through these generations as friends um, with the Chippewa because they understood suffering together. And this woman told me the story. She said, to this day, in this little town... There's this special bond between the Irish and the Chippewa, and they have annual picnics, and they have annual parades, and they help each other do work. And this whole thing came out of the suffering of the Chippewa people as it transformed into generosity and compassion and went and touched the hearts of the Irish people who then came back, and it's the circle continues. Beautiful story. I'll tell you another story. <clears throat> this one is <clears throat> partly about my brother, Rick. Um, he died uh, about six years ago, my only brother. And uh, he was a very high-powered, successful warrior who, who was loving his material life of sort of climbing the ladder of the power elite. And sort of, that, was, that was what he loved, you know, his sort of five-star life with all his... Trimmings. <clears throat> it was really funny, had a great sense of humor. We had a lot of fun together. 
he had a lot of fun making fun of me, particularly my little meditation retreats, etc. <clears throat> and he was pretty much in that lifestyle. I mean, he did pro bono work and, and that sort of thing, but his heart really didn't really crack open until he was dying of AIDS. And um, one night, I was the main, his main caregiver, and he was in the hospital when I had to tell him that this friend of both of ours, Bob, who we'd both known like about 23 or 4 years, had died. And Rick had become numb to hearing about the deaths of his friends. He had stopped attending funerals at 100, the 100th funeral of a friend, if you can even imagine. He was only in his 40s, early 40s. He died at 44. So when I had to tell him about Bob, I sort of expected him to stay in this numb thing that he'd been in for a while, but it was different. Now he was in the hospital bed, and he sat there, and tears started streaming down his face. And then, which I had never seen him cry, I mean, since he was a little child. And he just starts crying, and he's going, oh no, what about his mother, his beautiful mother, Beth? She is such a beautiful woman. How is she going to handle this? She lost her husband and two sons in 15 months. And my brother is blowing my mind, actually, by laying there with just tears, just streaming. And he starts telling me about Beth. He said, she was such a beautiful woman when we were teenagers and we were gay. And everybody in Southern California was so rejecting of us. She was so accepting. And she's always been so supportive of us. And He's telling me and crying. He says, who's going to help her? Deborah, will you? I'm too sick. Would you go see her? Would you help her? And Then as he felt, he was feeling compassion. He was feeling for her. And as he felt this, he then be, it began to dawn on his heart about our mother, who was also going to lose her son quite soon. And he begins feeling this compassion for her that he, of course, had been stopping because he didn't really want to feel how painful that would be for her. And, and once he was feeling it for our mother, it was like the dam broke. And suddenly he was just sobbing. And, and I can't describe to you how unusual it was to have my brother sobbing. You know, it just never happened. And he was feeling aware of all the patients in the hospital and all of their families and all the other hospitals. And suddenly all that grief was just coming out, and then he felt not only compassion for all these other people in the hospital, he felt compassion for himself for the first time, real compassion. And the beautiful thing, and I was so honored, you know, of course I'm just sitting there streaming tears too with him, that, that I got to be there to witness this was so beautiful, and what was really extraordinary was that for whatever combination of reasons, mostly the fact that he was dying, the wall never went back up. So for the short remainder, only two more months of his life, he was, he was just so open and loving and generous, and his humor stayed there till the very end. But he, he had the opportunity for these couple months of his life to just be so loving. And... He didn't seem to notice that it had been a radical change, although everyone else, you know, all the lawyers would come drop by and walk out with their jaw dropped, you know. That's Rick. 
It was really something. Really something. So I'd like you to notice for a minute, when you hear this story about Rick and you hear about this woman, Beth, who's a real woman, now in her late 70s, um, I don't really know how she's doing. I don't know what's happened in these years to her. Um, it's just been the holidays. I don't know what kind of loneliness she might be facing down. But I just want you to notice when you hear about her what you feel. And there's not a wrong feeling. You may experience the, the feeling of compassion, of care for her. You may experience numbness, nothing. You may experience just too much already. I've already had enough suffering today and now I'm hearing about more. You may feel overwhelmed by suffering. And occasionally we do get overwhelmed by the uh, intense emotions of life. And one of the things we do in this continual work of balancing these, all the different factors is if we feel overwhelmed, we can practice equanimity practice. And equanimity practice really is about seeing, again, seeing reality as it is and having a deep trust that, that, let's say Beth, for example, this woman, she is on her journey, and I can care deeply for you, Beth, but I cannot take on your suffering, and I wish you well, but this is your journey to take. That's part of the equanimity practice, when we start feeling overwhelmed. So you may feel compassion, or you may feel overwhelmed, You also may feel, when you hear about Beth or about my brother Rick, you may feel what's called the near enemy of compassion, which is pity. Sometimes we may feel pity, but think that's compassion. But pity has a different, it has the tinge of um, fear in it. It has, I mean, I'll kind of exaggerate it to feel it. It's like, oh, poor, poor her. Poor that other pitiful person who that awful thing happened to, but would never happen to me, of course, but is happening to them. I feel so bad for them. You kind of feel it. Whereas genuine compassion knows that this is my mother. This is me. This is our pain. It's not somebody, some pitiful other. We're not different. Rather, regardless of, of race or, or class or what culture, we all have impermanence in common. Every one of us has the capacity to love and to lose love and to hold that whole thing in compassion. And that's what we have in common. So for just a moment, I'd like you to close your eyes, but you don't have to change your posture. Just just if you'd close your eyes for a moment. And I want you just to think of this woman, Beth. Think of this woman who, in her late 70s, uh, lost so many dear family members. And as you think of her, See if you can allow her losses to touch your heart. 
to care, to just let yourself care for this stranger who suffered. It may or may not be suffering now. Remember, this is just a practice. There's no should here, but just the willingness to allow her sorrows to touch her heart. And from that place of touching, you silently send the message to her, I care about your sorrow. May you feel held in the great web of compassion. May you heal and be at peace, Beth. And may your losses be a gateway to great, great compassion for you. May you be free of suffering. So you can open your eyes. So that little tiny moment that we just did, which is just simply being aware of either your, your own or another's sorrow and allowing yourself to be touched by it and then wishing well, wishing love, wishing happiness to that being, that is the compassion practice. That's how simple it is. It, uh, it's very powerful, and you can imagine doing it um, for longer and more deeply. It's nothing to, if you feel yourself sort of submerging in it, submerging in grief, then bring in equanimity. But... It's just the um, reminder to our heart about this compassion, that it is possible to care for others' suffering, to care for our own. So um, I want to tell you a story about how um, compassion practice, which is the one we just did, can be used in the context of an intensive Vipassana retreat, which is what we're doing. It's a story that happened to me. Um, I was sitting on a um, smoggy, remote hilltop monastery in Nepal. If you've ever been to Nepal anywhere near Kathmandu, you know what I mean by smog. And I was having, it was very uh, similar what I was doing to what you're doing. I I was in silence and I was sitting and I was walking and I was having a retreat like they are, where everything happens. But it was going along, I don't know, eight or nine days into that. And um, then I started getting sick. And a number of you already know this about me, but I have lived with a recurring uh, health problem so that a a little sickness can go a long way for me. Like a little bronchitis could last for six months or something, you know, and it could really set off a whole chain of events. So... And it has a number of times. So, um, so when this little tiny beginning of a sickness started, this whole avalanche of aversion just came down on me. I was just filled with all this 
fear and all this worry and all this self-judgment and all just really a lot of it. And I was sitting there, you know, trying to practice, but my mind was just filled with, oh no, how long is this going to last? And oh my God, am I going to have to cancel everything? And will I be able to tra- you know, travel home? And how long, you know, it's all my fault and my husband's going to kill me. He said this would make me sick and he was right. Oh no, it's my fault. You know, what am I doing in a third world country? You know, the air is so terribly polluted. You could practically chew on it. It was so thick, you know, the air. Basically, I was just contracting into this state of, it's called proliferation, where the mind was just on a roll (laughs) against me. It basically all came down to the fact that I'm a total failure in everything. You know, I can't heal myself, I can't do the right thing, I can't make the right choice, and I'm a terrible person. So I was really in it. And um, there's a word for this in the Pali language, it's dukkha. And I was in what I have coined the phrase of deep dukkha. (laughs) Deep dukkha, suffering. I contracted, and I was doing everything right in terms of the practice. So I tried mindfulness. Okay, I'll note this. Okay, this is judging. This is fear. This is worry. You know. Okay, that didn't do anything. Okay, I'll try accepting it. Okay, this is just sickness. Okay, this is just fear. Accept. Okay, then I tried going into my body, you know, okay, tight, contracted, hot, knots. No, I just was getting deeper and deeper into dukkha land. For hours and hours. This was not just a few minutes, by the way. And this wasn't 20 years ago either. This was a couple years ago. This was with 25 years of practice under my belt. Just to let you know, (laughs) it doesn't stop. Um, So I'm sitting there. And I remembered that the Buddha taught if you are caught in aversion, lost in aversion, and mindfulness cannot help you. (laughs) You've already tried over and over. There's an antidote, the medicine. And the medicine, the antidote for aversion, fear, resistance, judging, is love and compassion. So I don't want to make it sound like There is nothing wrong with experiencing fear in meditation. I have experienced so much insecurity and fear in meditation. It's part of the path if you're really doing your work. Being mindful, being present with fear or sadness or whatever, fine. It's different to be lost in fear. There's no meditation going on. There's just this contracted state that's making itself worse. That's where I was. So I decided to try the antidote. But the fact was, I wasn't feeling any compassion or love. Quite not. I was uh, a little irritated at that concept, actually. Um, But I thought I would try, you know. I was desperate. So I sat there and I began just doing the practice that I knew that I'd practice. That's what we practice for, right? We practice and then someday we'll need it. Okay. So... I started out with kind of an attitude, okay, compassion for Deborah, okay, this again. But I, but I kept going, compassion to how hard this is, okay. Compassion to how hard it is to, be, to have a chronic illness and not 
to really be able to make plans. And as I did it, you know, I could actually begin to feel the opening compassion to to how scary it feels to be out here in the middle of nowhere and getting sick. I feel so vulnerable. Compassion to that. And compassion to out, out of control it all feels. And just compassion to my trembling humanness here that's so stuck. And as I worked with it, it began to soften me. It began to open me. And I could hear, as I was sitting in my little room, all, there's all these children, there's 60 children that live at the monastery, and I don't believe that one of them came there because everything was just fine, but they'll go live at the monastery. They're there because they're either orphans or they had to leave their families, they couldn't support them. They're Tibetan and Nepalese children who needed a place to live. And so they're given home and teachings by this Rinpoche. <clears throat> but I'm aware that each one of those children has this incredible story, and all their families have stories. And I began to feel all this compassion for the stories, the losses of the, that's with each of those kids, and then aware of this whole Tibetan village surrounding the monastery and everything that all those people have been through. Compassion. And as I was sitting, just doing this compassion practice, at some point, it was just compassion to all of us. There's nobody that doesn't go through loss. There's no one who is immune from suffering. And, and, and there's no one who's not trying to be happy and trying to feel secure in an insecure world. We're all trying. And, it's, and we get scared. We all get scared. And I just felt compassion to all of us. And there was just this such an opening through the compassion practice that as I sat with it, the compassion opened beyond my little fear self to this great, vast, silent heart of interconnection. So I was just resting, feeling a silent openness and connectedness. And I was still sick. But from this place that the compassion opened me to, the mindfulness was very easily reestablished. Again, the Buddha was right. The antidote worked. It's very good medicine. So, you know, we don't have to be sick or in some terrible suffering at all to find or cultivate compassion. As I said, it's part of our essential nature. It's what the Buddhists, uh, the Tibetans, call the part of the great innate perfection. But we come to practice in order to unveil that which is already here, to discover the the awakened heart that we already are. So as we practice meditation, and you, you can notice this probably already in just a couple days of practice, as our meditation deepens, the compassion deepens. That's just how it works. Because in our Vipassana practice, what we're doing is we're seeing and letting go of all the various kind of graspings and aversions, the clingings, all the wanting and the fearing of the mind. 
And what is underneath all that grasping and aversion is this natural great truth of being. When we practice and practice the all the layers of the protections and the stories begin to become more transparent. They're still there, but they're not so solid. And we begin to see more clearly just the nature of reality. And one of the things that's just experienced, seen as truth, not as an idea, but a direct experience, is the underlying interconnection of everything. It's just one of the facts, the facts of life for grown-ups, as they say. So in this place of interconnection, when we see the little child, the little starving child on TV, that's my child, that's your child. Just as when we see Jerry Farwell on TV, right, my buddy Jerry. Well, we don't, he doesn't have to be our friend, but he is completely us. Which does bring up the thought of fierce compassion. <laughs> um, many, many wise cultures have goddesses of compassion. They're all over the altar. And many have goddesses of fierce compassion. Sometimes they're also male deities, and they're often female deities. The goddess of fierce compassion will use anything, whatever is needed, to liberate. So you can get the quality of fierceness. Whatever is needed can be a big category. Um, For women, we cultivate not only our soft compassion, but also the fierce compassion that can come in the form of saying no or or, uh, setting boundaries or speaking a truth that nobody wants to hear. Can be, it's not necessarily, but that can be an expression of great compassion. Also, through our practice, we see the conditions that lead to suffering, that lead to actions that create suffering. And there's a poem that is, um, has really become a classic. You could have read it in Cosmopolitan magazine by now or uh, you know, at a college class by Thich Nhat Hanh. And I'll just read you part of this very famous poem um, called Please Call Me by My True Names. Please call me by my true names. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. And I am the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee in a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving.
My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it feels all four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all of my cries and all of the laughter at once. So I can see that my joy and my pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so that the door of my heart can open, the door of compassion. So, in this poem, we hear that the true compassion embraces everyone without exception. We know how much work we have to do. And that we can hear um, compassion is not a passive acceptance of the rapist or the actions of the rapist. But in our practice, we take the time to look at the conditions that led to his capacity to do harm. That that's part of the practice of compassion. So we learn to have compassion not on the actions necessarily, but compassion on the actor, the being who somehow did these actions. The Dalai Lama um, once said, he said, you know, Chinese soldiers have committed so many atrocities to innocent Tibetan people, to children, to nuns, to monks, to old people. He said, when I think of what it must be like in the hearts and the minds of those soldiers, how can I feel anything but compassion? So it's a steep assignment, this practice of real compassion, to reach the true heart of compassion. It asks us to look very deeply. Also, as part of the path of compassion, we are... um, The Buddha modeled and taught that we take compassion into action. That where possible, we work to alleviate suffering. So... uh, That can show up, you know, it might be sitting with the elder down the street just being with them. It might be going you know, to Seattle and facing tear gas or, or just being, um, being with somebody the way that family was with Gary. That's compassionate action. However it shows up in our life, every expression of, the, of action for the benefit of others is, is important. So another thing that the Dalai Lama said is that it's these little simple phrases. It's so obvious, but they're really profound if you think about it. He said, love and compassion are not luxury. They're necessity. They're necessity for life on earth. They're the most important thing. We think all these other things are so important. They're so important. And, you know, we don't have to look far. We can look into any home, any, any agency, any school, any spirit rock, anywhere, and see the truth of how important it is to bring 
compassion. I mean, it is, duh, you know, we all know that. And we, you know, it would be um, amazing if multinational corporations and, you know, advertising agencies and governments made their decisions based on actually caring for others. Wouldn't that be something? But it's not necessarily so. Um, But when we sit here and we pay close attention, we notice that the um, self-centered, greedy, cruel are not just those corporate or political bad guys out there somewhere, other. If we really pay attention, we see that it's all sitting right here. In every heart, there is greed, there is hatred, there is delusion. In every heart. So part of our work, part of our practice, to bring more compassion to the world is to learn to bring more compassion to ourself. As Adrian said last night, we sit here and we see all this stuff, and sometimes it's not easy to see what we see, and we then judge ourselves, which we all know intellectually doesn't help. (laughs) It just doesn't. It actually tightens the knot when we beat ourselves up, but we, we have quite a habit of doing it. But again, we'll remind ourselves that much more valuable to bring kindness. If you happen to be sitting and you might see greed in yourself, I want you to consider yourself fortunate. Or, or, or in a way, the world is fortunate if you are willing to admit to see this wanting, I want more of this, I want this, I want more money, I want more fame, I want more whatever it is, I want more. And you can name it without judgment, without a swat to yourself that I'm bad for it, just like, oh, here's greed here. To see it, to feel it, to be present with it is so important. Because if we really sit, for instance, with greed, our own greed, deeply, you know what we're going to find under all that I want more of this, I want more of this. It's just fear and insecurity. I just want to feel safe. I just want to be loved. I mean, that's what's under all this stuff, if we would just be willing to get there. And what happens, what would happen to our world or even our own life if we could see greed, for instance, and all the insecurity and fear under it, and meet it with mindfulness and compassion. And I will tell you what happens, and everybody I believe in this room knows what happens, because we've all had moments, many moments of it, is that separation melts. When we finally are with ourselves, even greed when we're with ourselves and meet what's here with compassion, the separation melts and we return to the heart that is greater than all the fear. There is a truth that is greater than all the fear. And we learn that when we could meet our own darkness and our smallness and our humanness with kindness instead of judgment, then we naturally are more able 
to meet others' darkness and others' smallness with compassion instead of adding yet more hatred to the world and hating it. So it's a, it's, we do it for all beings when we do it. Albert Einstein says, I'm going to change one word you'll understand when I do. A human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. She experiences herself, her thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of her consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So, as Albert suggests, our practice Part of the commitment of spiritual life and practice is to intentionally, not accidentally, cultivate love and compassion. And we can do that partly by when we're near suffering, ourself or someone else's, is just asking, can I open to this? Can I allow myself to care? Also, it's very powerful to use intention and to remind yourself, in a, if you want, in a daily way, of your intention, of your commitment to cultivate compassion. And I will end with a prayer that the Dalai Lama says every day. And as I read this, you might imagine what power it would have in your life if you started every day of your life by saying this out loud or chanting this, or something like this. May I become at all times, both now and forever, a protector for those without protection, a guide for those who have lost their way, a ship for those with oceans to cross, a bridge for those with rivers to cross, a sanctuary for those in danger, a lamp for those without light, a place of refuge for those who lack shelter, and a servant to all in need. So let's just sit for a few moments.
great compassion to ourself. Whatever our sorrows may be, may they be held in great kindness and compassion. And great compassion and love to all beings everywhere. So you have now about 20 minutes for walking and then the last sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.